Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and this is episode 118 of the podcast. This episode is the saga of my own knife design, the Dragonfly 4.5 knife, now known as the D-Fly 4.5, manufactured by Topps Knives. So, if you want to hear me rant about the decades-long process of coming to the final design of the official Canadian Bushcraft knife, stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. This episode is brought to you by the Hunter's Journey online course and community. Have you ever thought about getting into hunting but don't even know where to begin? Have you ever felt intimidated about getting into it because, well, you don't have people that want to support this exploration of food of yours? Or maybe you grew up in the hunting community but haven't felt connected to the morals and ethics of those that you know who hunt. For the last three years, my good friend Chris Gilmore and I have been running an online hunting course that has grown and blossomed into one of the most beautiful communities that I've ever been involved with. With access to hundreds of hours of videos, both short and sweet, as well as long and detailed, virtual hunt camps and classes, as well as an online growing community where you can share your experiences, get help with your challenges, and celebrate your successes. The Hunter's Journey is everything I ever wished for in my hunting community. And now it can be your hunting community. To learn more and register, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com. And if you register today, use the promo code DRAGONFLY75, and you can save $75 off of registration. I know Chris and I would both love to have you, and I know the community is excited to join you on your hunter's journey. So this episode is kind of inspired by having a lot of people ask me, A, why did you design a knife? Isn't there enough knives out there? B, how did you get a knife on the market? How did you do that? Like you're not on TV. You're not a published author. What, what gave you the credibility to put a knife out there? And, uh, what gives you the right to design a knife that's on the market in a sense? I've had a lot of (laughs) ways of people saying a lot more polite than that, but that's kind of the gist of it is, Hey, you're just some chubby dude from central Ontario. What the hell are you making a knife? Uh, Why are you designing a knife for one of the biggest names in the knife industry? And to this day, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's part of my imposter syndrome, um, and my anxiety and depression digging in there, my, uh, (laughs) my fears of being inadequate, but anyways, um, it's been a long journey. It's not like I just did it overnight and people just went, yeah, sure. We'll take it. There was a long process to get to this point. And also that first quite like one of those first questions of, why is there another, why, why are you putting a knife out? Um, partially because for me it was, I hadn't found my knife yet. You know, I've, I've had a long time using knives. My first knife was given to me by my father when I was seven years old. It was a Swiss army knife. I can't remember which model, but it was a very basic one. Very, very simple model. Uh, corkscrew of course, because what seven year old isn't opening a bottle of Chardonnay out in the woods. Um, a little space style blade, the little <laughs> toothpick and tweezers. And I had that thing for years. And that was like, to me as a kid, that was the perfect knife. 
and then parts of it would not work for things and I would break parts of it and it just wasn't adequate for general bushcraft kind of stuff that I want to get into. And when I was about eight or nine, you know, using axes with my dad, cutting wood with him, doing things in the bush in general, the knife had fallings. It had, it had faults. It, it, it was not infallible. And so as I started to learn more, I started carrying stronger knives, fixed blades, all that kind of stuff. But how did I get to where I am now with what I consider a good bush knife? What, what gave me, what experience did I have to get to this point? And this is not a, a rare experience. I want to make this very clear. A lot of people will find failings in the knives they carry, the tools they carry in general. This is the tools of the trade episode, by the way, if you haven't figured that out from the title. But uh, this process, a lot of people go through, especially people who take bushcraft seriously and they want this to be their, their, their main trade or their craft or whatever you want to describe it as. Almost every person I, I work with at some point or another says, man, I'd really like to design a knife that can do this. I really wish I could design a tool that can do this. It can do this, this, and this. These tools can do this and this, but they can't do that. And they can't do that. Or they can do these things, but I don't like those things. And so it's not a rare thing. And so I think one of the reasons I want to do this episode was not just to, you know, promote the knife or convince you that this is the knife you should get but to help inspire those of you that are like, man, like this is what I got, but it's not perfect to keep seeking perfection in your tools. It's an incredibly valuable aspect of tool design is looking for perfection and knowing you're not going to probably achieve it, but getting it so close is so rewarding. So let's dive headfirst into this whole saga. So as I started to learn you know, survival skills, bushcraft, camping skills, hunting skills, knowing that little Swiss army knife of mine was a little inadequate for the tasks at hand. I started looking for my knife and I was reading books like Paul Tarrell's book, uh, camping and wilderness survival, that big white coffee table style survival manual that every single person seems to get at some point in their career. I think I'm, we mentioned that in the knowledge first episode way back in season one. Um, and in there there's tons of knives and then I would read, Bush, uh, nor, uh, originally titled Northern Bushcraft by Morris Kohansky, and I would see the Mora knife in there, but I couldn't find Mora knives back in the early 2000s anywhere. And I didn't have a credit card. I was a 12-year-old, even younger than that. And then I met, when I was about 13 years old, my first mentor outside of family, direct family, Gino Ferry. Gino Ferry is uh, credited with a lot of people in Ontario and much of Canada of their survival training. He was my mentor since I was 13 years old, even to this day, he he's a mentor to me. And one of the first times we hung out, we were driving to Georgina Island, first nation from Bruce County. And I had <laughs> that classic. I think we talked about this in the knives episode of one of our first episodes of the podcast, this classic knockoff Rambo knife that's got the hollow handle with the plastic grip and the plastic compass attached to a plastic pommel and everything inside is just crap. Crap snare wire, crap matches, crap everything. Maybe the fish hooks and fishing line were okay, but everything else was garbage. 
And I'd already lost that pommel. I'd already lost all the things inside. The only thing I had left was this hollow handle on a knife blade attached by a crappy nut that was just threaded on. It wasn't even a good nut. They didn't even use a good uh, hardware store nut. They just had some crappy, plasticky, cheap metal at best. Felt like plastic to me. But that was a survival knife because it said on the box, survival knife. And I had that with me and we got out there and we were peeling uh, ash saplings to make a wigwam frame. And while we were peeling these trees, and there was like hundreds of them that had to get peeled because we were making like six wigwams. So just tons of poles need to get peeled. And I'm peeling them just as quick as everybody else. And on the first day, Gino said, that knife is shit. And that knife is going to break any day now. And I went, I don't know, Gino, I've had this knife since I was 10 and I'm 13 now and it's been holding up pretty good, even though half of it's not here anymore because it's all fallen off. Sure enough, three days later, the nut sheared off, fell in the lake while I was pulling out poles. The handle falls off and I just have a blade, just a blade with not even an actual saw blade on the back, just these serrations chopped out of the, out of the steel. I don't even know if that steel was heat treated. Like that's how crap of a blade this thing was. And he laughed and laughed and laughed. And then had to loan me knives for the next three days until I was able to get home and have my dad help me go buy a new knife. And while I'm there, Gino says to me, this is my knife. This is what I carry. This is what all I'd recommend to all my students that take survival course with me. This is the knife I carry. And he pulls out a K-Bar USMC Marine Corps, uh, I can't remember the official term, but the K-Bar knife that everybody knows. Like every person that gets into bushcraft sees one of these K-Bar knives at some point or another. And that was the knife he showed me. And I was like, oh, wow. And how much are these worth? And he's like, $120. I'm like, I was 13. I had no money. So trying to make it work out and I couldn't find a store that carried them. Like nobody sold these things. And he's like, oh, you just got to go to a surplus store. There was no genuine surplus stores in the Bruce Peninsula where I lived that I was aware of. To this day, I'm not sure. There's like a surplus store in Owen Sound but it's not an actual army surplus store and they just sell crap knives that are crap. The same kind of knives that I would be using at that time, uh, that fell apart. So he had me kind of imprinted on the idea of a K bar knife. And so I was looking for knives that looked like K bar knives. And the first knife I came across was a buck M one nineteen, and it was their centennial buck knife. And it's that classic buck hunting knife. The one you see in the scream movies, um, black phenolic resin handle, aluminum butt cap, aluminum and phenolic resin guard. And then a, I think a 440C stainless blade. I can't remember what the actual steel was for those ones from that edition. They may have changed them since then. <coughs> and back then those things went for like a hundred something dollars. Now you can find that Walmart and Canadian tire for like 60 to $70. But back then they were a hot commodity. They were a valuable knife. They were they're the quality control buck I've heard differing opinions. I don't know because I haven't carried a buck knife in a long time, uh, at least not a new one, but from what I've seen everybody else carrying, they seem to be okay, even though they've gotten cheaper. Who knows? Quality control may be the same. Maybe they're manufacturing differently. I don't know how it all works. I'm not a knife manufacturer. I've just designed a couple of knives. And so this thing looked like a K-Bar, 
didn't look exactly like a K-bar, but it seemed to work like a K-bar. And sure enough, we got all the poles peeled, used that knife for the next several years until I was about 16. And in that time using actual K-bars and the Buck M119 and other K-bar looking knives, I came to a few conclusions. Um, A, the blade will bend right at the tang. And I've seen that happen to multiple K-bars. And I've seen that happen to multiple Buck M119s because they have a very broad blade that stops at a stick tang, really, really skinny tang, which is like good. It's better that the bed, that the blade bends than shatters in my opinion. Um, and we'll get to that later in this episode when we're talking about the design behind the Dragonfly or the D-Fly 4.5. Um, they're also not ideal for carving. And like, if you're teaching people survival skills, they got to be able to carve, especially on the courses where it's mandatory that they make these things. They need to make pot hangers. They need to make feather sticks. They need to make trap triggers for deadfalls. All these kinds of things that, you know, are mandatory for the course for completion of the, of the class. And if your knife is not really well suited to those kinds of tasks, your product, your productivity is going to go down the toilet, but also your production quality is going to be shit. You're going to come up with very fuzzy, not very well shaved shavings to make good fires. Uh, you're not going to make very secure trap triggers or bow drill kits or anything else. If your knife doesn't have the edge geometry to shave wood. Now you can modify a K bar very easily. And we'll talk about modifications in a bit. Um, when we get into my, like, as I'm going through my teens and trying to make my perfect knife. Um, the one thing I will say about uh, a K bar is they can hold a good durable edge. They've got very good steel. They're using 1095 high carbon steel. They're using a very good heat treat process at K-Bar, all that kind of stuff. That particular model, I just don't consider good for bushcraft, uh, general survival skills, right? So learning under Gino, I got to play with a few different knives. I played with a couple of his Mora knives. I got to play with a few of his skinning knives, a few of his different carving knives. And through the process, I came across a knife I kind of liked. And that was the Green River Belt Knives. Uh, Green River Belt Knives are an ancestral knife company. They've been around for centuries now. Uh, currently owned by the Dexter Russell Company, and they're manufacturing them practically the exact same way they were made 200 plus years ago. And they're amazing. I love those knives. I always have one somewhere. Um, they're an ideal skinning knife, and they carve pretty good. They're really good on cedar. They're really good on birch. Green hardwood in general. Um, dried softwoods, they're, they're ideal on for pine, cedar, all that kind of stuff. The edges are really thin though, and it's a cold rolled steel. So it's a very, very, um, thin blade in all shapes and sizes and all dimensions. It's a very thin blade. The edge is very thin. The edge is very, very, sh uh, steep. I think is the term I'm looking for, where it's a high grind. Um, yeah. And then the actual stock steel of the spine is thin. Like if this is a thin blade, amazing at slicing into material like birch bark, cedar, basswood, things like that. Amazing at car, uh, at skinning, amazing at processing meat. It's basically a butcher knife. The one I carry is a four and a half inch blade. And that's my ideal size of a knife. In my opinion, is a four and a half inch blade for me. 
And so the problem is you try to in any way get a little abusive with this knife, the blade is going to warp. My very first one, I thought I had a piece of cedar wasn't really looking carefully. I was in my teens. I wasn't really good at wood identification yet. I was getting better at it though. Uh, I thought it was a piece of cedar and I went to baton this arm, uh, wrist thick piece of cedar turned out to be elm. That blade warped, it looked like a stretched out capital letter S <coughs> not, not great to try and do anything really aggressive with. You wouldn't want to put them through too much abuse. They're not meant for that kind of stuff. If you hear some sniffling and snuffling, that's the dog waking up and realizing he's on a couch. So, Green River Belt Knives, K-Bar Knives, these are all in my wheelhouse at the time. They're all in my brain, trying to figure out how to make better knives. Um, around that time, I started hanging out with a lot of old-school bush folk. Pinock Smith um, comes to mind. Saul Sloyven, Wilmer Najwan, who are wood carvers uh, up on Wilmer Najwan Bun from Naywasher, Cape Croker, and then Saul Sloyven. I believe he lived in Hepworth. And he was just doing these classes once in a while on woodworking, and a lot of it was wood carving. And so I got to spend time with a few of them here and there in my teens and see what was in their toolkits. Um, now, when I first started really learning from Wilmer, he had like these mechanical carving tools that were almost like knife dremels um, because he was, you know, he was getting up in there in age. His hands had been hard used, they've been abused, they're mistreated, they're getting all gnarly and arthritic. But he still had an incredible carving tool collection that he let me study and watch him use occasionally. So I got to really watch how he used a knife. Not just what tools he used and what kind of knife he used, but how he used the knife. Because in my opinion, and this is an opinion that I've kind of earned over decades of study. Literally decades of study. And what that opinion is is someone who's really crafted with their, really good at their craft, don't need fancy tools. They don't need any good quality tools. They can do really good with crap tools and still make really, really adequate, if not beautiful pieces of work. But if you give them a high quality tool, it's going to show really quickly. So watching how their knives were used more than just how the knives were shaped or designed I found really, really enlightening. And around this time, I began to start playing with a, a lot of different knife companies' designs. Uh, cold steel knives. Uh, Camillus, way back. Not the current Camillus knives that you see out there. Like, I'm talking the late 90s, early 2000s Camillus knives. Um, Buck, Case, Mora, Taylor Cutlery, like the United Cutlery, the Acme Knife Companies. <coughs> Pardon me. All these different kinds of knives, uh, I got to play with over 200 knives. I either used or uh, like borrowed from a friend to try out or bought outright from at least 40 different manufacturers and custom knife makers. By the time I got to my late teens, I was buying custom knives from people like Joel Delorme over in the United Kingdom and people from all over the place, trading for them, swapping knives, all that kind of stuff. And really started to sink my teeth into the idea of these designs. And I even started uh, toying with their designs and modifying them to suit my needs more. For example, K-Bar knives I would take to a file, like an axe file, and grind them from having a secondary bevel into a 
pseudo saber grind into more of a flat ground single bevel knife. Not full height flat, probably about the same bevel shoulder that you see on a regular K-bar, just flat, so that I could carve with it better. Um, Cold Steel Recon Tantos and Cold Steel Recon Scout Knives and Cold Steel SRKs when they were made of Carbon 5 or Carbon V from Camillus. Um, All these different kinds of knives, playing with, experimenting, modifying, trying to make them work. And all that kind of stuff really helped me understand what I was looking for. I wanted a knife that could process meat really, really well. Process skin, hide, meat, bone, all that kind of stuff. Like the Green River knives, like a lot of good skinning and hunting knives, but I still wanted it to be able to accomplish woodwork. I needed it to be able to carve, to feather wood, to shape wood into tools, into resources, into campcraft equipment. So with all of that in my mind, I was experimenting with all these knives and I started learning by reading Morse Kohansky's uh, Northern Bushcraft book uh, and all the other books I could find and looking at what they're talking about. I started picking up things like Mora knives. Um, The Mora knife is an ideal carver, but they're not great at skinning and butchering. Like that's, again, we're not getting, we're not hitting both marks. You know, I want both marks being hit for my ideal knife. <clears throat> the more knives are really good at shaping wood and they're pretty good at it and they're pretty affordable. But back then I couldn't find more knives. Again, I don't have money and I don't have stores around me that sell that stuff and I don't have the internet at that time. I think the internet we had when I was like 13 was dial-up. So yeah, I just did not have good uh, experiences trying to find a Mora knife. When I finally got one, I think I was like 17, 18. It was one of their laminated steel carvers. Uh, not the 106, the, the more classic looking blade um, from Lee Valley Hardware. And that was a good knife. It wasn't it, That was my first one. And I eventually gifted that away to a friend because I had received another one. I would gotten a more modern looking Mora knife. It had a hard plastic handle. It was one of the Swedish military models. Um, I broke that within a month of owning it. I broke it within a month of owning it. I was trying to baton through one inch thick cedar and I just struck it with another piece of two inch thick cedar and the entire handle shattered and I hadn't even hit the handle. So they aren't tanks and I want this knife to be what Moores would describe later to me as a well-balanced sharpened pry bar. I need this knife to be able to hold up to general use, hard use. Now, again, I don't recommend you batoning your knife abusively, but we're talking about, this was one inch kindling. I was just making feather sticks and sure enough, it shattered. So no bueno. Later uh, in 2010, when I was in my uh, early twenties, very early twenties, um, my friend Rob Mania from Practical Survivor uh, gifted me a Skookum Bush tool from Rod Garcia, who designed it under the basis of what Moores describes in Northern Bushcraft, and then later got advice from Moores himself. It's literally a, just like Moores described, a sharpened pry bar, but the edge was a little bit too stout 
uh, amazing for carving in general, but it's not ideal for carving and splitting with cedar and stuff when you're trying to make canoes, basket splints, all that kind of stuff out of cedar or black ash. And it's not ideal for cutting birch bark for baskets and stuff like that. And it's not the best design for skinning, but man, is that handle perfect. The blade is nice, a, a perfect length. The edge geometry is nice for what it needs to be done. And that's a general purpose survival knife. It can skin. Mora knives and skookum bush tools can skin and a green river knife can carve, but they're kind of compromising, right? You're compromising with your skills there. And so for me, the skookum bush tool, it's still one of my favorites. The other problem with the skookum bush tool that a lot of people have mentioned in the past, it's heavy. It's a heavy knife. And what's more problematic is that heavy knife, uh, ha is designed to be worn around your neck. So you have this weight on your neck all the time. Um, not necessarily ideal. And that was taken into consideration by me for the future knives. So spending all this time with all these people and playing with all these different knives, modifying them, I eventually started making my own in my late teens into my early twenties. I started making through stock removal, building my own smithy and having like complete you know, janky smithy. My anvil was a piece of railroad track that wasn't even clean. It was like really beat up. It was an old, uh, old timers, old anvil, like air quotes anvil before he got a good anvil. Um, I had no vices. I had no clamps. I had no tongs. The best thing I had was a pair of vice grips and I had like a, a wheel, an old tire rim full of charcoal that I would just get out of fire pits. Cause I couldn't even buy charcoal. Cause again, I'm a kid. Uh, and then I would steal my mother's hairdryer and hook that up to a steel piece of steel pipe I had found in a ditch. No idea if it was galvanized or not, or black steel or who knows. <clears throat> and I just used that as my bellows, my blower. And I would just make crappy knives and eventually got better at them, getting cleaner edges, figuring that stuff out, grinding. First off, realizing that you can't just use meat, like mild carbon steel from a hardware store to, to make knives. You can't heat treat. It just never gets hard enough. Um, not enough carbon content, but also just figuring out like how I want my bevels. How do I want my edge geometry? How do I want this to be? What do I want my handle to be like? My biggest gripe about most knives is the handles are crap. They're just not comfortable. I don't like most handles on knives. You can give me a beautiful looking knife and I get it in my hand and I go, mm, yeah, nice. Enjoy. That's, that's nice. It could be antler. It could be micarta. It could be, I don't know, ebony or teak or something. I don't care if the handle feels like garbage. I'm not going to enjoy carving with it. I'm not going to enjoy trying to skin with a knife that has a smooth, slippery surface that just doesn't let me hold onto it when my hands are getting bloody. All that kind of consideration had to keep coming back into my mind. And over time, I started figuring out what I did like in a knife, what I didn't like in a knife. And trying to put those together and forming a dialogue in my mind to other people to convey what I'm looking for. And so Moores would always say the perfect survival knife, regardless of the maker, regardless of what you're looking for is a well-balanced, sharpened pry bar that works wood really, really well. I would say as an addendum to that, it should be a well-balanced, sharpened pry bar that works wood and processes meat really, really well and has a comfortable handle. 
that that's to me, that's the bare bones necessities. It needs to be able to be those things. And which leaves it very open to interpretation of what you, dear listener, are looking for in a knife. For me, it still took a few more years to evolve my opinion. In 2009, I was contacted by Mike Fuller, uh, at that time, the owner and operator of Topps Knives. One of the most, at that point, I had known the name Topps Knives since I was, since 2003, when The Hunted came out, they put out the tracker knife from Tom Brown, uh, sorry, Tom Brown Jr. And (laughs) he contacted me, uh, December of 2009 and said, Hey, I'm looking for someone in Canada to test out my knives. And your friend, John Campbell from Arizona Bushman, High Desert Survival School contacted me and said, he found a guy, he recommended you, gave me your number. Uh, are you interested in having me ship you some knives in early 2010 to test out for me? And I went, yep, no problem. I'm going to be blunt with you if I don't like them. And I'll be very, very praising of things I do like about them. And he went, that's all I need to hear. The only request is I ask you not to put out a smear article. If you don't like a certain knife, send it back and tell me what you didn't like about it. And I really respected that. He wasn't paying me to test these knives. He was just giving them to me to test out. Um, and then I was like, do you want me to send them back? He's like, no, abuse them, try them out, wear them, wear off their, their finish and stuff. Do what you got to do to test these things. They're yours. So that was like the payment I got was I would get to keep the knives after. And, uh, I think I have like one or two left from the original order. The original order that, uh, that was delivered was a huge box of knives. I I don't want to get into, into money and stuff, but like that was, that could not have been cheap for them to send, to just mail to me. Um, and I beat the tar out of them. I beat the tar out of those knives and I built a reputation with him of being a hard user that would be honest with him about design features I didn't like. Uh, all the while I would actually sing the praises of designs I did like. And so he got to know me as someone that was very critical, regardless of whether the person's friendly with me or not. Mike had some great designs that he put out as, as a knife designer with his company. And he had some lemons as all knife companies do, because you have to keep producing new models every year or two to keep fresh and keep people interested in buying. Cause if they buy all of your stock, they can only buy so many iterations of the same knife. So you got to put out new knives every once in a while to keep attention and keep making money. Um, your loyal following can only remain so loyal for so long. So the fact that he was willing to put his net, his, his reputation out on the line by having me test his blades and, and see what I liked and what I didn't like we formed a really good relationship. Um, one day I'd like to have Leo Espinosa, who's the, the new, uh, president, the, the new owner of Topps Knives. Um, I would like to have him and Joe Flowers and a few other, the boys, uh, who've worked with Mike on the podcast. I'd like to do, cause this is actually the second anniversary of him passing is this month of November. And he was like, in a lot of ways, a father figure to me in this industry. He, he was a mentor to me. We had a lot of good heartfelt calls. I never got to meet him in person, which really breaks my heart. Um, always offered to, to have a space for me at blade show and, and, uh, shot show and stuff. 
to let me come down and promote the knives. He'd be like, Oh, we always got a spot for you here. You just got to pay your way to get here. And I just never had the time and the money to do it. And I've been regretful of that over the last two years. Leo has been doing an amazing job and we'll be talking about tops knives a little bit more because they're a big part of this whole lineage, this whole saga. Um, Leo has been doing an amazing, amazing job, uh, running tops since Mike retired originally in 2015, came out of semi-retirement a little bit in 2019, 2020, and then passed in 2020. Um, and since then Leo has been doing phenomenal and I would love to have him and Joe flowers and everybody else who, who, and do kind of a, a memorial episode in a year about Mike, um, because he was like dad to a lot of us. He would, he would check in with you. Even when he was retired, he would call me and check in with me and make sure he, he we were doing well here. Um, yeah, he was absolutely incredible. A lot of love for that guy. So with the story of Tops Knives and their involvement with me, um, in around 2011, I believe it was, um, my buddies, Mikhail, John, Robinia, uh, John Campbell, Mikhail McCreary. We've interviewed Mikhail on the podcast. We haven't interviewed Rob or John yet. And I would like to a lot. John has kind of got out of the bushcraft industry. Rob is very, very busy. <coughs> Pardon me. But we've also interviewed Joe. And these were like the original founding members of Bro- Brothers of Bushcraft. It was me, Mikhail, John, and Rob. And then soon after Joe... And then in 2012, Norseman, uh, probably better known nowadays as Gunnery Sergeant, da- uh, retired David Williams. Um, his YouTube channel, and we've talked about him when I did the episode called the boys in the first season of the podcast. Um, him and his wife, Angel have an awesome YouTube channel called Maker's Move. They also do, uh, Northwoods Kindred, uh, on TikTok and a few other places of social media. You'll find their stuff. Uh, he's the owner of survival hardware amazing knife designer, knife manufacturer. He makes knives and he's a very good knife maker. I love his knives. Um, anyways, we all kind of met over time over the internet. Mikhail living in Utah, John, if you want to hear the story of the boys, you'll get it. Don't worry. Just go to the boys episode of the podcast way back in 2020. I promise you, you're going to hear all my praise of these guys. We formed a group called the brothers of Bushcraft and Early on, Mike Fuller from Tops Knives caught wind of this group and wanted to support this project because that's what it was. It was a project. We wanted to show and showcase, share and showcase bushcraft from different regions of North America, the world, etc. Because me being in Canada, Rob and Joe both being in North Carolina, but Joe spending a lot of time in the tropics. Um, uh, Mikhail being in Utah, John Campbell being in Arizona, uh, in the high desert all that kind of stuff. I, I might end up being one day an expert in Canadian Eastern woodlands bushcraft. I'll never be an expert in all of those regions. I may never be an expert in my region, let alone all of them. So that was kind of the the inspiration behind the brothers of bushcraft, get people from all over the place, sharing and showcasing skills. Um, and Mike really dug this. He really, really liked it. And wanting to support the project, offered to let us design a knife for Tops to fund it. So initially, uh, Rob was not available at the time. Norseman hadn't joined the crew yet. It was mostly just Mikhail, me, John, and Joe. 
and John was a little busy at that time and Joe was very busy at that time. Uh, and so it kind of fell to Mikhail and I to begin the process. And then we were like, okay, we'll show you the rough drafts and you guys edit it kind of thing. So Mikhail figured out he was at the time already developing his CAD drawing. He's a graphic artist background, um, put up a CAD file. We basically, he would share his screen on Skype cause you all remember Skype, right? Um, he would, uh, put up the screen and he would just start drawing out the blade and I would sit there and draw on paper what I think the handle should look like. And we kind of kept bouncing back and forth, tweak the, he mostly focused on the blade. I focused on the handle and then we slowly blended those two things together, kind of got a good rough draft of it, showed it to Joe, showed it to John. Uh, and then they kind of either gave their thumbs up or added things. So that was kind of how it went is we, we slowly got it all figured out and debated a lot. There was a lot of debate and yeah, we eventually streamlined the blade into what we liked and what we didn't like was mostly removed, but there was still going to be, you know, it's four people designing a knife. The eventual design is what is now known as the Topps Fieldcraft knife, which has become one of their most popular models. I'm not going to say it's the most popular because I haven't seen the actual, you know, sales uh, the, the annual sales of what they sold each year of each model. But from what I've heard in the past, it had surpassed a lot of their other previous models that were like their flagship knives. Um, which I take a lot of pride in that because we did a lot of work on that design and it's proved concept that bushcraft knives can be tough, can be tactical and all that kind of stuff. However, and this is by no means I want to make this very clear by no means a criticism of the other guys and their opinions. Any knife designed by more than one person becomes a compromise of opinions and features. Some folks like beefy thick spines, some folks like ultra thin stock blades. Um, some folks like squared off chunky handles and while others prefer slim rounded, slim rounded, smooth handles that have no real edges or angles to them. Um, and as proud as I am of the contribution of my contribution of, to the Fieldcraft knife, and as much as I love having one in my collection, I was back to feeling like I don't have my perfect knife. It's a great knife. It's a, it's a beautiful knife. I'm very proud of it. I, if you're looking for something that's tough as nails, that you can really, really beat the absolute tar out of, you can't fail with a Fieldcraft knife. They're great knives, but it wasn't my ideal knife. It, it, it was our agreement in the crew that this is a good knife. This is a great knife. This is a beautiful knife, but it wasn't every single one of ours, perfect knives. Again, we all have different opinions on what this knife should look like. So there's a lot of debating. So in early 2013, I asked Mike if I could submit my own design. Originally, it looked more like a Skookum Bush tool with a full flat grind. But as I referred to my older designs and modifications and my notes on Saul's and Wilmer's and other people's knives, I realized I wanted this to be a good balance between a woodworking knife and a meat and hide processing knife. As I said before, it should be able to do both. It should be able to hit both marks and the field craft could do that, but I felt like we could do better. Like I could do better for what I'm looking for, not better than the field craft. And this is what I got to make very clear. This is all just what I wanted, what I wanted in a knife. And when I was done with that design over many years, 
of, of trying to get the perfect knife for me, I went, I wonder if other people would like this. And that's where the dragonfly knife, the original knife called the dragonfly by me, uh, came from. So this became the knife originally known as the dragonfly 4.5 and it was launched in, I believe fall of 2013 or summer of 2013. Now, this comes up with some stuff that needs to have the air cleared about. Um, there was a name change in 2019. It is no longer referred to as the Dragonfly knife or the Dragonfly 4.5 knife or the Dragonfly 4.5 or anything like that. Spyderco had put out a nice little folder, folding knife called the Dragonfly knife in 2007. This knife came out in 2013. There's a discrepancy of time there. That's they, they've had the design for six years before I put out my design with the same name. Uh, even with the, the numbers 4.5, it's, it's the same name. Now, when I first decided to name the knife Dragonfly Knife, I had done a few Google searches. I had tried Dragonfly Knife, the Dragonfly Knife, Dragonfly Bushcraft Knife, all that kind of stuff. We, I, 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 it, it did exist. I want to make that very clear. It had existed since 2007. This is not one of those weird things where people copyright a name, even though they never put the product out. It wasn't that. Spyderco had that knife on the market since 2007. It's just really weird that I never found it when I Googled it. Literally the name, Dragonfly Knife. Weirdly enough, when I did Google it, the only knives that did come up were Balasongs. You know, Butterfly Knives. Not dragonfly knives, butterfly knives. That's just weird. Like you would think if that knife had been on the market for seven, like six, seven years, I would have seen it before I named my knife. I never did. I, I n was never aware that the knife existed. I will openly accept that they had it on the market. I'm not trying to say that Spyderco pulled a shiesty maneuver, anything like that. Spyderco is a great knife company. They're a beautiful knife company. I have no problems with Spyderco or their designs. I like a lot of their knives. There, there's, there's this weird discrepancy on Google where I just couldn't find a dragonfly knife from any company. I even remember typing in like buck dragonfly knife, case dragonfly knife, Spyderco dragonfly knife, Benchmade dragonfly knife. And even when I typed in Spyderco dragonfly knife, all I ever saw were balasongs. So. In my defense, Google failed me. In my offense, I should have trusted to look at the actual knife company's catalogs. That could have probably saved my butt a lot of headaches. So I take full responsibility for that screw up in the naming. I thought we were in the clear, but we weren't. And then in 2019, which was one of the last deep, long calls I got to have with Mike before he passed in November of 2020, we decided to change the knife name. Uh, and that was specifically done in good, in good, in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? In good faith with Spyderco. There's no reason to have bad blood between Tops and, and Spyderco over a name of a knife. They're, they're both good companies that have got along with each other for many, many years. 
it's the knife comp the knife industry is a big family and sometimes there's a little bit of discrepancies a little bit of scuffles here and there there's like any big family but at the end of the day it's a big family we should all be getting along so if i put a knife out six years after someone else put out a knife of the same name i'll change the name that that was never a problem now They are a lovely knife company. I want to make that very clear. I know that I'm taking a lot of time here to praise Spyderco, but I have had a lot of pleasure in carrying a lot of their knife designs. Um, my personal favorite my, that I'm a big fan of is the Resilience. I love the Resilience folder uh, because I love big bladed folders. I just like a knife that's got a big blade on it for, for as a folder because it just makes a lot of sense to me, uh, especially with that long sweeping edge that they have where it's just a constant taper. Um, that's so good at like opening up packages, shaving kindling or skinning critters. Like it's, it's so nice. And so, uh, in 2019, we changed the name from Dragonfly 4.5 knife, the tops Dragonfly 4.5 knife to the tops D fly 4.5. I'll be open with my feelings. I'm not a huge fan of that name. Um, we might change it one day. We'll see where that goes. Uh, again, um, not again, just to clarify, like I'm not against it, like, or else we would have changed it in the last three years, but like it, it doesn't, you know, ring like the dragonfly knife did. So I'm still playing with some new ideas for names. We also have a bunch of other designs I'd like to put out and I haven't just had the time to contact Craig or Leo or anybody else at tops to really sit down and be like, here's some other designs of ours. Um, there's a lot of knife designs I'm always working on. I'm always playing with new ideas and thoughts and concepts. And that's kind of the conclusion of this story. This is a really short episode. Uh, this is pretty much the end of the story. We've, we're here now in 2022 with the D-Fly 4.5 made by Tops Knives in Idaho Falls, Idaho, USA. Designed by me. Um, and now I've got two really nice knives under my belt as a designer. One that I worked with some of the coolest people I know on with. And then one that I sat down, figured out what I wanted, had my friend Mikhail help me draw out the CAD file of it and changed a few things over the time we worked on it and modified a few things until it became what is now the Tops D-Fly 4.5. And it's incredible. It's a differential heat-treated blade. So... And <laughs> I love when you go on YouTube and you watch these bushcraft knife review videos. Um, it amuses me because a lot of the time people miss what, what skills are actually necessary and just kind of be like, well, this is what bushcraft is. Bushcraft is a state of mind. Bushcraft is what you do with your hands. There is no bushcraft knife. There's knives you can do bushcraft with, and that's pretty much any knife you're comfortable using, okay? A general purpose bush knife is a little bit more of a precise term to use, and that's why when you look at bushcraft by Morse Kohansky, that's the term he uses. Um, so, I, I find it really amusing. There's certain parts where people are always like, I can't get a ferro rod to spark on this knife spine. I'm not trying to make them sound you know, nerdy or dorky or anything like that. That's just the voice that came out of my parched throat and damaged lungs. Um, because they're going right where the handle is and they're pushing down and trying to scrape. And the problem is that's a differentially heat treated spine. 
the spine of the knife is softer than the edge of the knife. And that's to keep the knife from shattering when you do abusive tasks with it. It'll bend. You might chip the edge, but you're not going to break the knife. You're not going to outright shatter it. And that's the point of differential heat treat. It's, it's meant to protect the blade from shattering. You can always, you know, cold hammer it straight again or bend it in a vice carefully, all that kind of stuff to get it back to straight. But if you shatter the blade, you've shattered the blade. So, and that makes Tracker make a big sigh because he just doesn't like the idea of you breaking your blades. And as a man that has broken a lot of blades, it's easier than you think. So differential heat treat is something I really do like. But that makes the, hand, the, the, the majority of the spine soft. Now, if you were to practice ferro rod firelighting from the perspectives of Morse Kohansky, Gino Ferry, and a lot of other people, you shouldn't be, you know, kneeling down in the muck trying to scrape near your handle to get a little spit of sparks onto your, onto your kindling. You should be able to stand up and shower your sparks down onto your kindling. Do you know how to do that best with any knife? Out near the tip of the blade on the spine. That's where you want to throw your sparks because you're getting more leverage to throw a large shower of sparks, which increases your odds of lighting it on fire. So if I can stand and do that, I stay dry while I also get my fire lit. And that also means that I can have my fire in position on top of all my kindling, the beginning of my kindling. We'll get into fire lighting with ferro rods in another night. But basically this is a better way in a lot of aspects to get a fire lit. Guess what is hard spined on a differentially heat treated knife? The edge out near the tip to the spine. So the D-fly or dragonfly, whatever you want to call it, at the tip of the knife where the bevel starts, you can throw, I literally throw showers like thunderstorms. I feel like Thor or Zeus when I have a ferro rod with my dragonfly knife. And I can throw sparks right to the ground from standing position. And I can throw molten sparks from standing position. So let's get, let's clear the air on that. People who are critiquing and criticizing that the spine is not 90 degrees. Yes, it is. You can scrape bark off of sticks to your heart's content. Uh, I don't know when that became the thing to define bushcraft, but apparently it is that you should be able to scrape with a 90 degree edge. Again, making voices. Sorry, I'm tired. It's late and I'm annoyed about all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know when that became the definition of bushcraft or a bushcraft knife, air quotes around that. Uh, but apparently it is. You can do that with a differentially heat treated spine that is 90 degrees. It is 90 degrees. It's not rounded over. It's not polished over. It's not chamfered. It's a 90 degree spine. It's just differentially heat treated. You can still throw sparks that are molten big showers of sparks out near the tip of the knife. You can still shave bark with the spine of your knife for whatever reason you want to do that for. Um, and make that your like personality with your knife, whatever. The blade is wide enough to skin with. And I made it have that kind of almost like a Groman belt knife meets a DH, uh, sorry, uh, Dexter Russell Green River knife. It's got that kind of hump on the blade that allows you to kind of lift the tip up when you're gutting a deer 
or opening the belly on a moose and doesn't allow the tip to drive into the guts. So very, very well thought out blade design, I think for me. And that blade has a much higher bevel or steeper bevel than most other bushcraft knives because of how thin the blade is only one eighth of an inch thick with the same height as a tops field crafts, making that bevel angle much, much thinner and narrower and skinnier, meaning it will shear birch bark. It'll cut into cedar and split cedar splints and basket splints and shave up wood really well, but it's still slightly convexed. It's what the, what tops calls the scandivex grind, which makes it a little bit more robust, which means it's not going to chip on me. I've never had one chip and I've done some pretty stupid things with my knife. The tip of a knife is always the weak point. And even skookum bush tools break their tips. Moras break their tips. K-bars break their tips. That's the one weak point on almost any knife design, which is why big parang-like knives don't usually have a tip. They have a rounded point because it's going to break off anyways. Why make it? Anyways, um, the handle is meant to be fairly slim but it's a long handle. The handle is five inches long. The blade is four and a half inches long because I've got big meat hooks, but also I like having a little bit of leverage on my handle. I'll pinch grip the pommel of my knife and whip snip branches off of trees, vines off of a fence row, whatever I need to do, like almost like light machete work. I can turn my little bush knife into a light machete in those situations. The handle's my carta. The hand, the sheaths are they were originally the Cordura nylon that, uh, tops was kind of infamous for having in the early two thousands into the late 2010s. Um, most of them are leather or Kydex now, The field craft, I think you can get in, in both leather and Kydex. When I pick up orders of Dragonfly or D-Fly knives to sell, I get them exclusively in the leather sheaths. And I think they sell the D-Fly exclusively in the leather sheath now. Beautiful leather sheaths, beautiful leather sheaths. There's three brass tubes as rivets. And the idea behind that is actually, uh, inspired from Moore's with, uh, multi lanyard points. You have different ways of setting a lanyard on your knife. If you want to have a lanyard on your knife, I'm not a big fan of lanyards on knives. That's the personal preference, but it's also lashing points to turn this into a longer handled short blade machete in a sense for cutting thatching material, reaching out to snip apples out of trees or other fruit. Uh, as well as for being able to be used to gather and slice at different materials that you may not be able to reach from where you are. Maybe there's a lot of poison ivy and you're trying to poke a mushroom off of a tree, things like that. Uh, it allows you to do those kind of things. Not a fishing spear. Please don't drive a knife. <sighs> when I see knives being used as spears, I always cry a little bit and die inside a little bit. Please don't do that. Use a spearhead. They're, they're not that hard to find these days. There's even like silly ones being made on wish.com and stuff. Like you can get crap spears if you just want to have spears to throw around. Please don't do that with a good knife. That's, that's not what they're intended for. My Norseman though, when we did one of our last Brothers of Bushcraft events, Norseman took a Topps Fieldcraft knife and lashed it to a pole and demonstrated to the guys how to make a ice chisel 
and just using the weight of the pole, not force, just lifting and dropping the pole, you have an ice chisel made out of a knife and it does work as long as the knife is strong enough for that. I would say that the Dragonfly or D-Fly 4.5 can do that kind of work, especially if you don't force the driving, you just lift and drop. Um, but I wouldn't try to spear fish through a river and hit a bunch of rocks and stuff. Just not a good idea with your knife. But this knife has been a long process. Like this knife began in a sense back in like 2002, 2001, maybe even. And over the years has developed into what is now my knife. The knife that everybody looks at as Caleb's knife. Uh, the D-Fly, the Dragonfly, whatever you want to call it. Uh, these days I just call it the Canadian Bushcraft Knife. And maybe that's what we'll rename the knife or rebrand the name as. Um, but it's also grown me into having more appreciation for other people's knife designs. When Joe Flowers puts out a new design with either Tops or Condor or anybody else he works with, I have a lot of respect for how many designs that guy has put out on the market. A lot of respect. Because I've basically made my life off of two designs. I've, I've, I've built my entire personality as an air quotes knife designer, which is designing two knives. This guy puts out 10, 15, sometimes a year, sometimes some years he's only putting out a few, but some years he's putting out like 20. The guy's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Can't wait to have Joe on the show again. Mikhail now manufactures his own knives for fun. He, he became a bladesmith after this whole process. Like it's Norseman already was a knife designer and knife maker before he joined Brothers of Bushcraft. When he joined Brothers of Bushcraft, one of the reasons he wanted to join Brothers of Bushcraft was he liked the Fieldcraft knife design. He's like, that was it. That that's got a lot of the same features I look for in a knife. Now we're brothers. We love each other. He's family to me. Same with same with Rob. Same with Joe. Same with Nor. Uh, I almost said Norseman again. John and Mikhail. These people. M M Mike Fuller became like a second father to me. And I, I grieved him like I lost my father and then lost my father. Yeah, we got there again. Always a cheerful ending to the podcast, huh? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's been a rough couple of years. So, um, this process has brought me to this point and now I'm looking at new designs. I'm looking at new concepts beyond the general purpose bush knife. I'm looking at my concepts of a carving knife, my concepts of a skinning knife, my concepts of a hunting knife, which is kind of a skinning knife meets survival knife if it needs to be kind of thing. Kind of like that Green River knife, but more robust. Those kinds of concepts are all kind of always in my head and names for them all of them based off dragonflies and damselflies. We have the damselfly for a neck knife. We have the uh, jewel wing for a carving knife. All these kinds of names planned out. Um, the design's still on paper, not in action yet. And we don't have a manufacturer yet. I may go be going back to Tops for those. Um, I might be going somewhere else. I would love to make knives in Canada. I would love to have manufactured in made in Canada knives. Uh, have not found a company in Canada that is willing to do them. Um, not going to talk smack about any specific company. Uh, and it's not smack. It's their, it's their prerogative. It's their business decision, their business model to stick with what they've got. 
all respect to them, love their knives, no problem with that. Um, but one day I would like to have my knives manufactured here in Canada by a reputable company that can do big enough production level that we can actually have them in camping and hunting stores across Canada, uh, and served uh, and potentially carried by our, our service, uh, our service folk in the air force, army, navy, etc. like search and rescue, all that kind of stuff. I would love to see my designs servicing the people of Canada one day. Anyways, that is kind of the, the end of the story here. Um, and I'm hoping it's inspiring you. If you have a knife that's just not working for you, it's not doing everything you wish it could. And you come back with a little bit of buyer's remorse kind of thing. Sit there and be critical of it. What features do you like? What features can't you stand? What features do you despise? What features do you adore? Break it down in detail. Don't just go by what other people are saying. Please don't do that. This has taken me years to understand and unlearn the process of just regurgitating what everybody else thinks. If we just regurgitate what everybody else thinks, we never learn, right? Repetition is not education. Memorizing phrases and memorizing terminology is not education. To become better educated in bushcraft, you have to actually experience things and be a critical thinker all the time about all the context, about all the situations, about all the variables. But that's part of the fun of it. You feel like you're investigating. You feel like a proper researcher when you think critically about everything. I personally do not get too hung up on steel type. I know a lot of people do. And I've, I've heard so much about metallurgy and I've learned so much about metallurgy over the years that I've come to the conclusion that I don't care whether it's silver, steel, bearing steel, tool steel, leaf spring steel. I don't care at the end of the day. If it's a reputable steel manufactured by a reputable man manufacturer and it's being heat shaped and heat treated by a reputable company, I'm probably not going to have that much to complain about with the steel. Some people think it, 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 it's the make or break of your survival situation of whether it's a crucible steel versus a bearing steel. I have not come across that situation yet. Our ancestors got by when the Iron Age and the Bronze Age and the Copper Age and the Stone Age. We've gotten through all those processes today to, to this point. And now we're all like, we need this type of steel to survive in the wilderness. No, you don't. No, you don't. Just good quality steel from a reputable manufacturer being turned into knives and heat treated as knives by a reputable manufacturer. That's really all I care about. If any of those are shit, the knife will be shit, right? Anyways, think critical and Hey, find a local knife maker. See if they're willing to work with you on your design. See if you can make your dream knife. I'm nobody. I'm, I'm not a published author in survival skills. I'm not a, you know, at the time of this, of this process, I was not on television. Now I've been on TV a couple of times here in Canada, almost exclusively. There's, there's, 
I had no reputation outside of being a good writer on the internet when I first started designing, putting my designs on the market. I, I'm, I was as much a nobody as anybody else there is. So don't be intimidated to say, Hey, I want to design my own knife. How do I go about that? Figure that out. Talk to knife makers in your area. Listen to blacksmithing and bladesmithing podcasts. Watch blacksmithing and bladesmithing shows, knife making shows, all that kind of stuff. Watch YouTube videos on it. Read articles about it. Find a mentor and learn from them and see if you can make yourself your ideal bush knife. Because it'll probably not be my ideal bush knife. I mean, the Fieldcraft knife is really popular. The Dragonfly or D-Fly knife, eh, pretty decent. Like, it's it's doing pretty decent sales. I'd love to see higher sales, but that's just because I'd like to be able to make sure all my ends meet, financially speaking. But I don't expect every person on the planet to love my knife design. I think a few people will, and I think they will show it to some friends who might appreciate it as well. Or maybe some people just collect knives and that's okay too. Or maybe they don't want my knife and that's okay too, because I'm hoping to put some more down the pipeline. Anyways, that's the end of this episode. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. In one moment, you're going to be hearing a lot of love towards our patrons. Speaking of which, uh, this week, near the end of this week, into the weekend, you will be noticing on patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft, a lot of content being dropped at once, uh, FLIR video footage, audio recordings, all this kind of stuff are being dropped on Patreon for all tiers. And this is the second part of our Halloween special. Our Halloween special dropped yesterday or sorry, Monday of this week, October 31st on Halloween, uh, where we interviewed Chad Redding. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. The rest of the footage that we're referring to of interviewing him over at the bridges at Gettysburg, uh, the video footage from when him and I were doing our patrols around the camp at two, three, four in the morning, they are also going to be up on Patreon over the next couple of days. We should have it launched hopefully by Friday. All of it. I've been slowly uploading every night trying to save the bandwidth here on the res. Um, that is all getting uploaded to a playlist specifically for our patrons on Patreon. So if you want to see more of that spooky stuff, more of that spooky, scary stuff, more of that creepy stuff, more of that paranormal stuff. You can find it over there at patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft. Now to thank our patrons from Patreon who've been supporting us all this time. Well, we're here again, thanking all of our supporters over at Patreon. There's so much that these folks do for us. You folks who are patrons at Patreon, you're keeping the lights on here. You're keeping the dogs and the ducks fed so they don't raise up against, rise up against us in a revolution. You're taking care of Rye and I with all of our projects and all of Canadian Bushcraft really, really appreciates your support. So we're trying to do as much kickbacks as we can back to everybody. Like these specials coming from Halloween, we've got some coins a really cool project of casting our own medals and stuff that will be going live in November this month. Uh, it was supposed to be in October, but we got way behind on the house build and of course getting sick and everything else. Um, all this kind of stuff cannot happen without our supporters at Patreon. So if you want to become a supporter of ours, go to patreon.com slash Bushcraft for as little as a coffee a month, which makes us sound like one of those Christian children's funds videos, those infomercials where 
for just the cost of a dollar, uh, cost of a coffee a day. Well, we're even cheaper than that one coffee a month. And you can get a lot of this content and you're helping support the project of the podcast, of our upcoming videos, of all of our live sessions, of these little projects we do just for you as kickbacks, uh, virtual classes, which are starting back up. We've been behind for two months because of illnesses and because of a lot of projects trying to get finished here for the, the off-grid projects and everything else. But we are coming back strong with a whole bunch more content and there's so much more coming down the pipeline. We got to thank people like Renee Nolting, Paul McCartney, uh, as well as a lot of our other supporters like Chris Dutton, Martin Heidinger, Nelson Costas, so many different people who take care of us and help support us. Thank you to all of you from the bottom of my heart, from the cockles of Ryan's hearts, from the black abyss that is Tracker's heart, from the fluffy marshmallow that is Sushi's heart. We love you all so, so much. Thank you so much for everything you do for us. And we will see you all again next week on the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. Take care, folks.